0: 8. Longer than the shell, this neck being represented by the stalk of the barnacle. The neck is described as being composed of a kind of filmy substance, round, and hollow, and creased, not unlike the windpipe of a chicken, spreading out broadest where it is fastened to the tree, from which it seems to draw and convey the matter which serves for the growth and vegetation of the shell and the little bird within it. Sir Robert Morey therefore agrees in respect of the manner of nourishment of the barnacles with the opinion of Geraldus already quoted. The author goes on to describe the bird found in every shell he opened, remarking that there appeared nothing wanting as to the internal parts. For making up a perfect sea fowl, every little part appearing so distinctly, that the whole looked like a large bird seen through a concave or diminishing glass. Color and feature being everywhere so clear and neat the bird, is most minutely described as to its bill, eyes, head, neck, breast, wings, tail, and feet, the feathers being, everywhere perfectly shaped, and blackish colored, all being dead and dry, says Sir Robert, I did not look after the internal parts of them, a statement decidedly inconsistent with his previous assertion as to the perfect condition of the internal parts, and he takes care to add, nor did I ever see any of the little birds alive, Nor met with anybody that did. Only some credible persons, he concludes, have assured me they have seen some as big as their fist. This last writer thus avers that he saw little birds within the shells he clearly enough describes as those of the barnacles. We must either credit Sir Robert with describing what he never saw, or with misconstruing what he did see. His description of the goose corresponds with that of the barnacle goose, the reputed progeny of the shells, and it would, therefore, seem that this author with the myth at hand, saw the barnacles only with the eyes of a credulous observer, and thus beheld, in the inside of each shell. If indeed, his research actually extended thus far the reproduction in miniature of a goose, with which, as a mature bird, he was well acquainted, on page 157 is a woodcut, copied from Munster's Cosmography, 1550, a very popular book in its time, showing the tree with its fruit, and the geese which are supposed to have just escaped from it. This historical ramble may fitly preface what we have to say regarding the probable origin of the myth. By what means could the barnacles become credited with the power of producing the well-known geese? Once started, the progress and growth of the myth are easily accounted for. The mere transmission of a fable from one generation or century to another is a simply explained circumstance, and one exemplified by the practices of our own times. The process of accretion and addition is also well illustrated in the perpetuation of fables, since the tale is certain to lose nothing in its historical journey, but, on the contrary, to receive additional elaboration with increasing age. Professor Max Muller, after discussing various theories of the origin of the barnacle myth, declares in favor of the idea that confusion of language and alteration of names lie at the root of the error. The learned author of the science of language argues that the true barnacles were named Properly enough, Bernicule, and lay stress on the fact that Bernicule geese were first caught in Ireland, that country becomes Hibernia in Latin, and the Irish geese were accordingly named Hibernicule, or Hiberniculi by the omission of the first syllable no uncommon operation for words to undergo we obtain the name Bernicule for the geese, this term being almost synonymous with the name Bernicule already applied, as we have seen, to the barnacles, bernicla geese and bernicla shells. Confused in name, thus became confused in nature, and once started, the ordinary process of growth was sufficient to further intensify and render more realistic the story of the barnacle tree and its wonderful progeny. By way of a companion legend to that of the barnacle tree, we may select the story of the lamb tree of Cathay, told by Sir John Mandeville, whose notes of travel regarding crocodiles, stares, and other points in the confirmation of these reptiles. Had already been referred to, Sir John, in that chapter of his work which treats, of the countries and isles that bend these on the land of Cathay, and of the fruits there, etc. relates that in Cathay, there groweth a manner of free, as though they were bowards, and when they bend reap, men cut cut hammer to them in two, and men thinned them within a little best beast, in flesh and bone and blood bone and blood as though it were a little lamb, lamb without wool without wool, and men eaten both the fruit and the best, and that, says Sir John, is a great marvelly, of that front, he continues, I had it Ellie thought they were wonderful, this being added, no doubt, from an idea that there might possibly be some stay at home persons who would take Sir John's statement con grano solis, but, adds this worthy, Nick de Vingoland, I know well that God is marvelous in his workies, not to be behind the inhabitants of cafe in a tale of wonders. The night related to these easterns, els grat a to have that is amongst us, and that was of the Bernaques, for I told a him had in our country weren't trees that barren a free, that become in as birds flee and though that fell in the water live and live, and they that fallen on the earthy thee dying and on, and they been right go to man's meat man's meat, and here had they owls grat marvel concludes Sir John, that zoom of ham it were an impossible thing to be, probably the inhabitants of Cathay. Knowing their own weakness as regards the land tree, might possess a fellow feeling for their visitor's credulity. Knowing well, from experience, the readiness with which a great marvel could be evolved and sustained, passing from the sphere of the mythical and marvelous as represented in medieval times, we may shortly discuss a question, which, of all others, may justly claim a place in the records of zoological curiosities namely, the famous and oft repeated story of the toad from the solid rock as the country newspapers style the incident, regularly, year by year, and in company with the reports of the sea serpent's reappearance, we may read of the discoveries of toads and frogs in situations and under circumstances suggestive of a singular vitality on the part of the amphibians, of more than usual credulity on the part of the hearers, or of a large share of inventive genius in the narrators of such tales, the question possesses for everyone a certain degree of interest evoked by the curious and strange features presented on the face of the tales, and it may therefore not only prove an interesting but also a full study, if we endeavor to arrive at some just and logical conceptions of these wonderful narrations, instances of the discovery of toads and frogs in solid rocks need not be specially given, suffice it to say, that these narratives are repeated year by year with little variation, a large block of stone or face of rock is detached from its site, and a toad or frog is seen hereafter to be hopping about in its usual lively manner. The conclusion to which the bystanders invariably come is that the animal must have been contained within the rock, and that it was liberated by the dislodgement of the mass. Now, in many instances, cases of the appearance of toads during quarrying operations have been found, on close examination, to present no evidence whatever that the appearance of the animals was due to the dislodgement of the stones. A frog or toad may be found hopping about among some recently formed debris, and the animal is at once seized upon and reported as having emerged from the rocks into the light of day. There is in such a case not the slightest ground for supposing any such thing, and the animal may more reasonably be presumed to have simply hopped into the debris from its ordinary habitat, but laying aside narratives of this kind, which lose their possibility under a very commonplace scrutiny, there still exist cases reported in an apparently exact and truthful manner, in which these animals have been alleged to appear from the inner crevices of rocks after the removal of large masses of the formations. We shall assume these latter tales to contain a plain, and varnished statement of what was observed, and deal with the evidence they present on this footing. One or two notable examples of such verified tales are related by Smelly, in his, Philosophy of Natural History. Thus, in the Memoirs of the French Academy of Sciences, for 1719, a toad is described as having been found in the heart of an elm tree, and another is stated to have been found in the heart of an old oak tree. In 1731, near Nantes, the condition of the trees is not expressly stated, nor are we afforded any information regarding the appearance of the toad's particulars of considerable importance in view of the suggestions and explanations to be presently brought forward. Smelly himself. While inclined to be skeptical in regard to the truth or exactness of many of the tales told of the vitality of toads, regards the matter as affording food for reflection, since he remarks, but I mean not to persuade, for I cannot satisfy myself, all I intend island to recommend to those gentlemen who may hereafter chance to see such rare phenomena, a strict examination of every circumstance that can throw light upon a subject so dark and mysterious, for the vulgar. Ever inclined to render in common appearances still more marvelous, are not to be trusted. The offer strikes the keynote of the inquiry in his concluding words, and we shall find that the explanation of the matter really lies in the clear understanding of what are the probabilities and what the actual details of the cases presented for consideration. We may firstly, then, glance at a few of the peculiarities of the frogs and toads, regarded from a zoological point of view. As everyone knows, These animals emerge from the egg in the form of little fish-like tadpoles, provided with outside gills, which are soon replaced by inside gills, resembling those of fishes. The hind legs are next developed, and the forelimbs follow a little later, whilst, with the development of lungs, and the disappearance of the gills and tail, the animal leaves the water, and remains for the rest of its life an air-breathing, terrestrial animal. Then, secondly, in the adult frog or toad, The naturalist would point to the importance of the skin as not only supplementing, but, in some cases, actually supplanting the work of the lungs as the breathing organ. Frogs and toads will live for months underwater, and will survive the exesion of the lungs for like periods, the skin in such cases serving as the breathing surface. A third point worthy of remembrance is included in the facts just related, and is implied in the information that these animals can exist for long periods without food and with but a limited supply of air, we can understand this toleration on the part of these animals when we take into consideration their cold-blood habits, which do not necessitate, and which are not accompanied by, the amount of vital activity we are accustomed to note in higher animals, and, as a last feature in the purely scientific history of the frogs and toads, it may be remarked that these animals are known to live for long periods, one pet toad is mentioned by a Mr. R. Scott as having attained, to his knowledge, the age of thirty-six years, and a greater age still might have been recorded of the specimen, but for the untoward treatment it sustained at the hands, or rather beak, of a tame raven, in all probability it may be safely assumed that, when the conditions of life are favorable, these creatures may attain a highly venerable age regarding the lapse of time from a purely human and interested point of view. We may now inquire whether or not the foregoing considerations may serve to throw any light upon the tales of the quarrymen. The first point to which attention may be directed is that involved in the statement that the amphibian has been imprisoned in a solid rock. Much stress is usually laid on the fact that the rock was solid, this fact being held to imply the great age, not to say antiquity, of the rock and its supposed tenant, the impartial observer, after an examination of the evidence presented will be inclined to doubt greatly the justification for inserting the adjective, solid, for usually no evidence whatever is forthcoming as to the state of the rock prior to its removal. No previous examination of the rock is or can be made, from the circumstance that no interest can possibly attach to its condition until its removal reveals the apparent wonder it contained, in the shape of the live toad. And it is equally important to note that we rarely, if ever, Find mention of any examination of the rock being made subsequently to the discovery. Hence, a first and grave objection may be taken to the validity of the supposition that the rock was solid, and it may be fairly urged that on this supposition the whole question turns and depends. For if the rock cannot be proved to have been impermeable to and barred against the entrance of living creatures, the objector may proceed to show the possibility of the toad having gained admission, under certain notable circumstances, to its present house. The frog or toad in its young state, and having just entered upon its terrestrial life, is a small creature, which could, with the utmost ease, wriggle into crevices and crannies of a size which would almost preclude such apertures being noticed at all. Gaining access to a roomier crevice or nook within, and finding there a good supply of air, along with a dietary consisting chiefly of insects, the animal would grow with tolerable rapidity and would increase to such an extent that egress through its aperture of entrance would become an impossibility. Next, let us suppose that the toleration of the toad's system to starvation and to a limited supply of air is taken into account, together with the fact that these creatures will hibernate during each winter, and thus economize, as it were, their vital activity and strength. And after the animal has thus existed for a year or two no doubt under singularly hard conditions let us imagine that the rock is split up by the wedge and lever of the excavator. We can then readily enough account for the apparently inexplicable story of the toad in the rock. There is the toad and here is the solid rock. Say the gossips. There is an animal which has singular powers of sustaining life under and conditions. And which, in its young state, could have gained admittance to the rock through a mere crevice says the naturalist in reply. Doubtless, the great army of the unconvinced may still believe in the tale as told them, for the weighing of evidence and the placing pros and cons in fair contrast are not tasks of congenial or wanted kind in the ordinary run of life. Some people there will be who will believe in the original solid rock and its toad, despite the assertion of the geologists that the earliest fossils of toads appear in almost the last formed rocks, and that alive toad in rocks of very ancient age presuming According to the popular belief, that the animal was enclosed when the rock was formed would be as great an anomaly and wonder as the mention, as an historical fact, of an express train or the telegraph in the days of the patriarchs, in other words, the live toad which hops out of an old red sandstone rock must be presumed, on the popular belief, to be older by untold ages than the oldest fossil frogs and toads, the reasonable mind, however, will ponder and consider each feature of the case and will rather prefer to countenance a supposition based on ordinary experience, than an explanation brought ready-made from the domain of the miraculous, whilst not the least noteworthy feature of these cases is that included in the remark of Smelly, respecting the tendency of uneducated and superstitious persons to magnify what is uncommon, and in his sage conclusion that as a rule such persons in the matter of their relations are not to be trusted but it must also be noted that we possess valuable evidence of a positive and direct kind bearing on the duration of life in toads under adverse circumstances. As this evidence tells most powerfully against the supposition that the existence of those creatures can be indefinitely prolonged, it forms of itself a variable court of appeal in the cases under discussion. The late Dr. Buckland, curious to learn the exact extent of the vitality of the toad, caused, in the year 1825, two large blocks of stone to be prepared. One of the blocks was taken from the oilite limestone, and in this first stone twelve cells were excavated. Each cell was one foot deep and five inches in diameter. The mouth of each cell was grooved so as to admit of two covers being placed over the aperture, the first or lower cover being of glass, and the upper one of slate. Both covers were so adapted that they could be firmly looted down with clay or putty, The object of this double protection being that the slate cover could be raised so as to inspect the contained object through the closed glass cover without admitting air. In the second or sandstone block, a series of 12 cells was also excavated, these latter cells being, however, of smaller size than those of the limestone block. Each cell being only 6 inches in depth by 5 inches in diameter. These cells were likewise fitted with double covers. On November 26, 1825, A live toad kept for some time previously to ensure its being healthy was placed in each of the 24 cells. The largest specimen weighed 1185 grains, and the smallest 115 grains. The stones and the immured toads were buried on the day mentioned, three feet deep, in Dry Buckland's garden. There they lay until December 10, 1826, when they were disinterred and their tenants examined. All the toads in the smaller cells of the sandstone block were dead and from the progress of decomposition it was inferred that they had succumbed long before the date of disinterment, the majority of the toads in the limestone block were alive, and, curiously enough, one or two had actually increased in weight, thus, number five, which at the commencement of its captivity had weighed 1185 grains, had increased to 1265 grains, but the glass cover of number five single quote S was found to be cracked. Insects and air must therefore had obtained admittance and had afforded nourishment to the imprisoned toad, this supposition being rendered the more likely by the discovery that in one of the cells, the covers of which were also cracked and the tenant of which was dead, numerous insects were found. Number 9, weighing originally 988 grains, had increased during its incarceration to 1116 grains, but Number 1, which in the year 1825 had weighed 924 grains, was found in December, 1826, to have decreased to 698 grains, and number 11, originally weighing 936 grains, had likewise disagreed with the imprisonment, weighing only 652 grains when examined in 1826, that the period when the blocks of stone were thus prepared, for toads were pinned up in holes 5 inches deep and 3 inches in diameter, cut in the stem of an apple tree. The holes being firmly plugged with tightly fitting wooden plugs, these four toads were found to be dead when examined along with the others in 1826, and of four others enclosed in basins made of plaster of Paris, and which were also buried in Dry Bucklands Garden. Two were found to be dead at the end of a the year, their comrades being alive, but looking starved and meager, the toads which were found alive in the limestone block in December, 1826, were again immured and buried, but were found to be dead without leaving a single survivor, at the end of the second year of their imprisonment. These experiments may fairly be said to prove two points. They firstly show that under circumstances even of a favorable kind when compared with the condition popularly believed in namely, that of being enclosed in a solid rock the limit of the toad's life may be assumed to be within two years, this period being no doubt capable of being extended when the animal gains a slight advantage, exemplified by the admission of air and insect food. Secondly. We may reasonably argue that these experiments show that toads when rigorously treated, like other animals, become starved and meagre, and by no means resemble the lively, well-fed animals reported as having emerged from an imprisonment extending, in popular estimation, through periods of inconceivable duration. These tales are, in short, as devoid of actual foundation as are the modern beliefs in the venomous properties of the toad or the ancient beliefs in the occult and mystic powers of various parts of its frame when used in incantations. Shakespeare, whilst attributing to the toad venomous qualities, has yet immortalized it in his famous simile by crediting it with the possession of a precious jewel. But even in the latter case the animal gets but scant justice, for science strips it of its poetical reputation. And in this, as in other respects, shows it, despite fable and myth, to be zoologically uninteresting, but otherwise a commonplace member of the animal series. On a piece of chalk a lecture to a working man, delivered in England, by T. H. Huxley. If a well were to be sunk at our feet in the midst of the city of Norwich, the diggers would very soon find themselves at work in that white substance almost too soft to be called rock, with which we are all familiar as chalk. Not only here, but over the whole county of Norfolk, the well sinker might carry his shaft down many hundred feet without coming to the end of the chalk and, on the sea coast, where the waves have pared away the face of the land which breasts them, the scarped faces of the high cliffs are often wholly formed of the same material, northward, the chalk may be followed as far as Yorkshire, on the south coast it appears abruptly in the picturesque western bays of Dorset, and breaks into the needles of the Isle of Wight, while on the shores of Camp it supplies that long line of white cliffs to which England owes her name of Albion, where the thin soil which covers it all washed away, a curved band of white chalk, here broader, and there narrower, might be followed diagonally across England from Luleworth in Dorset, to Flamborough Head in Yorkshire a distance of over 280 miles as the crow flies, from this band to the North Sea, on the east, and the Channel, on the south. The chalk is largely hidden by other deposits, but, except in the Weald of Camp and Sussex, it enters into the very foundation of all the southeastern counties, attaining as it does in some places, a thickness of more than a thousand feet, the English chalk must be admitted to be a mass of considerable magnitude, nevertheless, it covers but an insignificant portion of the whole area occupied by the chalk formation of the globe, which has precisely the same general character as ours, and is found in detached patches, some less, and others more extensive, than the English. Chalk occurs in Northwest Ireland, it stretches over a large part of France the chalk which underlies Paris being, in fact, a continuation of that of the London basin, it runs through Denmark and Central Europe, and extends southward to North Africa, while eastward, it appears in the Crimea and in Syria, and may be traced as far as the shores of the Sea of Aral, in Central Asia, if all the points at which true chalk occurs were circumscribed they would lie within an irregular oval about 3,000 miles in long diameter the area of which would be as great as that of Europe, and would many times exceed that of the largest existing island sea the Mediterranean. Thus the chalk is now an important element in the masonry of the earth's crust, and it impresses a peculiar stamp, varying with the conditions to which it is exposed, on the scenery of the districts in which it occurs, the undulating downs and rounded coombs, covered with sweet grass turf, of our inland chalk country had a peacefully domestic and button-suggesting prettiness, but can hardly be called either grand or beautiful. But on our southern coasts, the wall-sided cliffs, many hundred feet high, with vast needles and pinnacles standing out in the sea, sharp and solitary enough to serve as perches for the weary cormorant, confer a wonderful beauty and grandeur upon the chalk headlands. And in the east, chalk has its share in the formation of some of the most venerable of mountain ranges, such as the Lebanon what is this widespread component of the surface of the earth? And whence did it come? You may think this no very hopeful inquiry. You may not unnaturally suppose that the attempt to solve such problems as these can lead to no result, save that of entangling the inquirer in vague speculations, incapable of refutation and of verification. If such were really the case, I should have selected some other subject than a piece of chalk for my discourse. But, in truth, after much deliberation, I have been unable to think of any topic which would so well enable me to lead you to see how solid is the foundation upon which some of the most startling conclusions of physical science rest. A great chapter of the history of the world is written in the chalk. Few passages in the history of man can be supported by such an overwhelming mass of direct and indirect evidence as that which testifies to the truth of the fragment of the history of the globe, which I hope to enable you to read, with your own eyes, tonight. Illustration. Microscopic section of chalk, magnified nearly 300 times. 1. Textilaria. 2. Globigerina. 3. Rotalia. 4. Coccoliths. Let me add, that few chapters of human history had a more profound significance for ourselves. I weigh my words well when I assert, that the man who should know the true history of the bit of chalk which every carpenter carries about in his breeches pocket, though ignorant of all other history, is likely if he will think his knowledge out to its ultimate results, to have a truer, and therefore a better, conception of this wonderful universe, and of man's relation to it, than the most learned student who is deep read in the records of humanity and ignorant of those of nature. The language of the chalk is not hard to learn, not nearly so hard as Latin, if you only want to get at the broad features of the story it has to tell, and I propose that we now set to a work to spell that story out together. We all know that if we, burn, chalk, the result is quick lime, chalk, in fact, is a compound of carbonic acid gas and lime, and when you make it very hot, the carbonic acid flies away and the lime is left, by this method of procedure we see the lime, but we do not see the carbonic acid, if, on the other hand, you were to powder a little chalk and drop it into a good deal of strong vinegar, there would be a great bubbling and fizzing, and, finally, a clear liquid in which no sign of chalk would appear. Here you see the carbonic acid in the bubbles, the lime, dissolved in the vinegar, vanishes from sight. There are a great many other ways of showing that chalk is essentially nothing but carbonic acid and quick lime. Chemists enunciate the result of all the experiments which prove this, by stating that chalk is almost wholly composed of carbonate of lime. It is desirable for us to start from the knowledge of this fact. Though it may not seem to help us very far toward what we seek. For carbonate of lime is a widely spread substance, and is met with under very various conditions. All sorts of limestones are composed of more or less pure carbonate of lime. The crust which is often deposited by waters which have drained through limestone rocks, in the form of what are called stalagmites and stalactites, is carbonate of lime. Or, to take a more familiar example, the fur on the inside of a teakettle is carbonate of lime. And, for anything chemistry tells us to the contrary, the chalk might be a kind of gigantic fur upon the bottom of the earth kettle, which is kept pretty hot below. Let us try another method of making the chalk tell us its own history. To the unassisted eye chalk looks simply like a very loose and open kind of stone, but it is possible to grind a slice of chalk down so thin that you can see through it until it is thin enough, in fact, to be examined with any magnifying power that may be thought desirable. A thin slice of the fur of a kettle might be made in the same way. If it were examined microscopically, it would show itself to be a more or less distinctly laminated mineral substance, and nothing more. But the slice of chalk presents a totally different appearance when placed under the microscope. The general mass of it is made up of very minute granules, but, embedded in this matrix, are innumerable bodies, some smaller and some larger, but, on a rough average, not more than a hundredth of an inch in diameter having a well-defined shape and structure. A cubic inch of some specimens of chalk may contain hundreds of thousands of these bodies, compact together with incalculable millions of the granules. The examination of a transparent slice gives a good notion of the manner in which the components of the chalk are arranged, and of their relative proportions, but, by rubbing up some chalk with a brush in water and then pouring off the milky fluid, so as to obtain sediments of different degrees of fineness. The granules and the minute rounded bodies may be pretty well separated from one another and submitted to microscopic examination, either as opaque or as transparent objects. By combining the views obtained in these various methods, each of the rounded bodies may be proved to be a beautifully constructed calcareous fabric made up of a number of chambers, communicating freely with one another. The chambered bodies are of various forms. One of the commonest is something like a badly grown raspberry being formed of a number of nearly globular chambers of different sizes congregated together. It is called globigerina, And some specimens of chalk consist of little else than globigerina and granules. Let us fix our attention upon the globigerina. It is the spore of the game we are tracking. If we can learn what it is and what are the conditions of its existence, we shall see our way to the origin and past history of the chalk. A suggestion which may naturally enough present itself island that these curious bodies are the result of some process of aggregation which has taken place in the carbonate of lime, that, just as in winter, the rye on our windows simulates the most delicate and elegantly arborescent foliage proving that the mere mineral mat.